Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hey, friends. As you all know, the presidential election is coming up November 3rd. If you haven't yet registered to vote, my favorite resource for all voting questions is IWillVote.com. There, you can check your registration, request an absentee ballot, apply to vote by mail, or vote from abroad. With so much at risk this election, it's imperative that we make sure our voices are heard. And I'm so hopeful that everyone in this community shows up this election to make change. Now let's get to the show. Hi, everyone. My name's Olivia Perez. I'm a journalist, entrepreneur, and the host of Friend of a Friend, a show where we sit down with some of my friends, your friends, and new friends to host inspiring conversations about building something from the ground up. Today is October 26th, which means we are officially one week away from Election Day. I know I am not alone in saying that my anxiety is raging. So today I asked my friend Amanda Littman, a woman whose experience in political elections is unmatched, to join me on the show and tell us about the incredible work that she's doing within the election circuit and also give us a thorough pep talk on what to expect in the next few weeks. Amanda Littman is the co-founder and executive director of Run For Something, an organization that supports and provides tools necessary for young progressive Americans to launch local campaigns of their own. Since its founding in 2017, Run For Something has recruited 60,000 people to run for local office across the country, endorsed 1,400 candidates, 309 of which were elected, and currently have 623 candidates running in this year's election. She's also the author and host of a podcast aptly both named Run For Something, both of which document her journey in politics and highlight the inspiring stories of some of her Run For Something candidates. In this episode, Amanda and I discuss the importance of local elections, how Run For Something's candidates are changing the landscape of American politics from their communities to the White House, and her best advice for coping with the upcoming election month. Here's my friend, Amanda Littman. Thank you so much for having me. Oh my God. Thank you for coming on. I'm honored, truly. How are you today? Today, it's been busy. It's been a busy week. As it turns out, a month before election day is really hard. I forgot. (laughs) Yeah, I can only imagine. I think in general, the general population feels stressed out and anxious. I can only imagine what it's like to actually work in politics and deal with it very front and center. It sucks. I mean, it's great. It's a privilege and an honor, and I love my job, and it's also really shitty. Duality. It's important. All of those things can be true at the same time. For everybody that's just tuning in, can you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about the work that you do? So my name is Amanda Littman. I am one of the co-founders and the executive director for something. I was originally born and raised in Virginia, went to Northwestern for college because I wanted to work for Barack Obama. So I got an internship on his reelection campaign as a senior at school 
doing online fundraising and volunteer recruitment. All those emails that you ever get from campaigns asking you for money, that was me and my team. Worked for him through election day and then a little bit after for his nonprofit, moved down to Florida to work on the governor's race there in 2014, doing online fundraising and volunteer recruitment, then moved to New York where I now live to work for Hillary's campaign. So I worked for Hillary for two years as her email director. It's a privilege and an honor and devastating. <laughs> and after election day, heard from somebody I went to college with. Hey, Amanda, uh, you've worked in campaigns for a couple of years. Seems like you know this space. I'm a public school teacher in Chicago. I want to run for office. What do I do? I did not have an answer for him because at the time, if you were young, if you were newly excited about politics, but you maybe didn't have a ton of money, you didn't really know this space, but you knew you wanted to lead, there was nowhere you could go that would answer your call. So I thought to myself, that seems like a problem I could solve. We could create an organization that gives a space for people like my friend from college and countless more who are thinking about running for office and need someone to help them through it. Reached out to a whole bunch of people, one of whom became my co-founder, this incredible operative named Ross Morales Ricketto. He's been working in campaigns for about 15 years. We wrote a plan, we built a website, and then we launched Run for Something on Inauguration Day. So we thought it would be really small. We're like, this will be a cool side hustle. What a fun hobby this will be. Uh, we wanted to get maybe 100 people in the first year. The first week, we had 1,000 people sign up. And as of wow. today, we're at about 62,000 young people all across the country who have said they want to run for office. So what was going to be my side hustle is now a 150% full-time, 24-7 job, multi-million dollar organization, 16 staffers working with, this year we'll have about 522 candidates on the ballot in, on November 3rd. And we've elected already in the last three and a half years, more than 300. So it's pretty cool. It's a fun job. It's really hard. <laughs> I'm so curious to hear about your childhood and if politics was a part of your upbringing, because it seems like you definitely have a knack for it, having really just wanted to work for Obama before he was even in office. And even just with your work today, being able to kind of identify talent that you think would be good for politics it's so interesting. I'd love to hear just if you were around it as a kid, if your parents were political, um, and just kind of how that became a part of your life. My parents are not political. Uh, my dad was a lawyer and a banker and was a Republican. <laughs> my mom had dropped Ooh. out of law school. That, that must have been harsh. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Virginia Republicans are like a little bit special snowflakes, but my mom had dropped out of law school when my parents got married and she was a stay-at-home mom. I have three younger siblings. So all like really close in age, like I'm 30, my sister's 29, my brother's 28, my little sister's 26. We didn't really, they weren't political in nature, but I always wanted to work in politics. I don't remember a time in which I didn't think politics was the way you solve problems. Um, when I grew up going to Jewish summer camp, a big premise of that was we have a responsibility to save the world and to make the world a better place. And so for me, politics felt like the path forward. So when I was in high school, I used to knock doors for Virginia Democrats. I remember knocking doors for Tim Kaine and for Cray Deeds and with the county party. My best friend's mom was like kind of a hippie. And so she used to take us to pro-choice Virginia rallies. And in like my high school bedroom, I have like a lime green NARAL pro-choice Virginia t-shirt that aggressively no longer fits because I wore it when I was 15 from like volunteering at these things. But I would, you know, it's interesting in politics, especially in like some of these more activist circles, there's always like a, what's your story of self? What brings you to this work? What was the trauma you endured in order to, to inspire your activism? And it's like, I thought this was interesting and I thought it was a way I could make the world a better place. And I think that's enough because it is, it's really, 
it is, it is a, not the only way to make a difference, but for me, it felt like the one where your clear cut impact could be felt and seen. I'm sure you really felt that on election night. You do. And I think in any election night, win or lose, you can feel like there's a clear metric of success. And if you are someone like me who really likes gold stars, like sometimes you don't get gold stars because sometimes you lose, but when you win, it's just like the best of the gold stars, which is cool. I meant specifically even like launching this in 2016 when that was probably the most like devastating night of all time. Yeah. Election night in 2016 was bad. Wouldn't do it again. Yeah. I was. Wouldn't do it again. Wouldn't repeat that. Wouldn't find. Been there, done that, have the therapy bills to prove it. In election night 2016 was after two years of working 100 hour weeks and not seeing my dog or going to a grocery store and missing weddings and birthdays and my mental and physical health. And just like, it was terrible. It was terrible. It was also amazing. And the community that you build around a campaign was incredible. But election night was supposed to be the culmination of this powerful moment. And the two years leading up to it, the campaign had been getting, the staff had been getting pep talks. Like the campaign manager would come out or the department head would come out and be like, we are the only thing standing between America and fascism. We are the only thing protecting immigrants. We are the, you, your work is what is protecting a woman's right to make their own healthcare choices. And if you don't work harder, you are letting those people down. And that's true to a certain extent, but then you hit election night and you fail and that really hits you. You remember those pep talks and the, the implications of that because it's true. And that's a scary place to be in. Well, I hope that you find solace in knowing that the work that you do now makes a huge difference in a very positive way. I do. And it's actually the best part of it is I've made a job for myself that doesn't require thinking about Trump every day. I mean, I, I do because I, I do, but I don't have to. And it's not my professional obligation. In fact, my professional obligation is to think about everything else, is to think about the women running for state legislature that then pass Medicaid expansion, giving 400,000 Virginians more health care. And the, the guy who runs for sheriff and wins and then changes the sheriff department's policies around trans inmates to, to better respect their gender identity. So it's stuff like that that actually makes it really meaningful. On that note, a lot of the work that you do is considered down-ballot elections. This podcast is not specifically a political one, but I am really, really dedicated to bringing on as many figures as I can to help educate my audience, especially because I do have a younger audience that skews towards college students. And I know a lot of them are voting for their first time this year, which is really exciting. And I'm just excited to be providing as much education as I possibly can. Can you explain what down ballot elections are? I can. And in fact, I can even visualize it because I have my ballot right in front of me. Love. Let's do it. So you open your ballot. Let's say you, like me, are a New York voter, but maybe you're not. And the first thing you will see at the very top of your ballot is the president. President's up here. As you then go down the ballot, the offices continue. So like I live in New York. My next highest office is Congress. Depending on where you are, you might have Senate, you might have a governor. Continue going down the ballot. The one after that is state senator. And the one after that is state assembly. So it's literally, as you look at the ballot you're filling out, how further, further down is more and more local because everyone on their ballot, no matter where they are, is going to have the top one, the president, and then you will have maybe whoever encompasses the next highest rung of leadership. And then the back, as it turns out, you should always flip over your ballot, will be my justices for my Supreme Court. But depending on where you are, there might be issue referendums, there might be community leaders, there might be school board members. 
There's a whole range of things. I just saw one of our candidates post online today, like the further down the ballot you go, the closer to your doorstep that office is. So if you think about who actually affects your quality of life on a day-to-day basis, yes, it's super important who wins the presidency. And it's super important who wins the Senate and Congress and governor. But on things like clean water, liquor licenses, quality of your schools, whether or not your apartment is rent controlled, uh, whether there's apartments you can afford to rent or homes you can afford to buy, that stuff starts at the local level. It comes from our city councils and our state legislatures. So I think especially for folks who are voting for the first time or may not have voted uh, wherever you're living for before, the further down ballot you go, the, in fact, the more important the office is for how you experience life wherever you're living. Is that why you chose to make the focus of run for something on down ballot elections? It's a big part of it. I think people don't realize there are more than half a million elected offices in the United States, and most of them are not president or Congress. Yeah, I feel like it's the least, maybe like most unsexy conversation to have in terms of elections. Oh, it's totally unsexy. But I think that's true of a lot of things of like the things that are the least sexy are also the most important because it's the things that no one's paying attention to. It is deeply unsexy. It's something that at least the Democratic political party has ignored for a long time. It's also something that if you are young and you've never run for office before, it's doable because ultimately as a candidate for these offices, you can literally talk to every voter, you know, especially outside of the big, big cities, the people running for city council or for school board will knock 5,000 doors or in the pre-pandemic times now, they'll make five or 10,000 phone calls. They'll have thousands of conversations with people. And most people in this country, unless you really work in politics or you're super, super wealthy, you're never going to meet your senator. You're never going to meet the presidential candidate. But you probably will run into your city council member at the gym or the grocery store or your church or synagogue. Like You're going to know them. And that, I think, personal relationship is what makes these offices really powerful because you can yell at them personally when they don't listen to you, uh, which makes it fun. We'll be right back after the break. This week's episode is sponsored by Georgetown McDonough MBA. If there is anything I could redo looking back on my college career, there's nothing I regret more than not getting a business degree. As an entrepreneur and someone who always wanted to be one, there were so many things that I had to learn the hard way and still am. And an MBA can apply to almost anything you do in your professional career. Georgetown University's McDonough School of Business develops principled leaders committed to serving both business and society. Through their global perspective, they prepare students to compete in today's international business environment. Whether you choose to immerse yourself in their full-time program or choose to balance work and life with their Flex MBA program, their programs are the perfect launchpad for discovering your true strengths and finding a program that best fits your needs. Flexible formats mean you can earn a Georgetown MBA on your schedule. It's a part-time program you can complete in as little as 26 months, advancing your career without pausing it. As a Georgetown MBA student, you'll have access to all Washington DC has to offer, from top thought leaders to the world's largest multinational corporations. And you'll get to meet people from all around the world, with the incoming MBA classes representing 42 different countries. This multiculturalism is just one of the ways Georgetown exposes you to diverse perspectives and prepares you to excel on the global stage. The Recruiter Insights Report from Bloomberg Businessweek rated Georgetown MBAs as the world's most innovative, creative, and best-trained graduates. And at Georgetown, you'll become a part of this like-minded community that's paving the way to success for entrepreneurs and thought leaders like so many of you listening, and even guests that we've had on the show who are following their dreams too. Explore the full-time and flex MBA programs and discover how Georgetown McDonough can help you launch the career you want at choosegeorgetown.com MBA. 
Hi, I'm Claire Mazur. And I'm Erica Cerullo. We're the co-hosts of a podcast called A Thing or Two. It comes out every Monday and the basic premise is this. We share all the stuff we think more people should know about. So that's apps, recipes, books, the nationwide Haagen-Dazs vanilla bean shortage that nobody else was talking about. Our no one. No one. <laughs> our preferred vacuum brands of which we have multiples and critical explorations of our unique approaches to paper towel usage. Listen, we think you're going to like it. A lot of people do. And who's to say you'll be any different? Listen and subscribe wherever it is you listen and subscribe to podcasts. I would love to hear a little bit about run for something in relation to just young people in the United States right now. A big, obviously the biggest focus for you guys is encouraging young people who are interested in politics to run. Mm -hmm. Why do you think it's most advantageous to encourage youth, especially in a time where I feel like politically in the past, youth have been categorically ignored from a lot of campaign marketing and getting them out there to vote? Um, I think that's exactly why it's so important. You know, run for something only works with people ages 18 to 40. It's not that we don't think people older than 40 should run for office. Everyone should run for office. However, people ages 18 to 40 have been systematically and pretty intentionally dismissed from the process of campaigns for the last 50 years. Only 5% of state legislators are under the age of 35. Right now, there are 26 millennials in Congress. There should be about 100 if we were accurately represented. There is, I believe, one in the United States Senate. Now, granted, there's some age limits to both of those chambers, but still, 25 and 30, there should be a few more. And when you think about the issues that matter, it's really important to have young people's representation in the room. Things like affordable housing. You know, we're working with a candidate in California who's running for state assembly. If he wins, he will be the only renter in the state assembly. His perspective as a renter, is really important as part of the conversation about affordable housing. Similarly, in Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania is one of the states where um, Pennsylvanians carry the largest amount of student debt. The average Pennsylvanian with student debt has about $30,000 worth of loans that they have to repay. And up until a couple years ago, there was nobody in the state legislature thinking about what can they do to relieve that student debt problem. So elected in 2017, 18, 19, a whole number of young people who also have student debt to the Pennsylvania State House. They then created the Student Debt Crisis Caucus, which means there's now a group of people thinking about it all the time. Even stuff like uh, equal pay. You know, if you haven't had to negotiate for equal pay in 20 years, it matters. It's, it brings a different perspective. I especially think about this around childcare. Not that people with older kids aren't tackling it, but especially for, especially for women in our 20s and 30s, you know, your kids are probably younger if you have them. And the, the challenges that you're facing trying to balance this stage of your career and your family and your uh, rest of your life are different than a 50 or 60-year-old woman whose kids have left home. And that doesn't mean that that perspective isn't important, but we need both in the room. So it's Absolutely. one of the that Run for Something is trying to fix is bringing more young perspectives into the conversation. And the bonus of that is that the younger generation, 18 to 40, is dramatically more diverse, which means that more than 50% of the people Run for Something work with are women, but more than 50% are Black, Indigenous, or people of color. It's representative of the country that we are slowly and hopefully quickly becoming. So for everybody listening right now, I am a huge fan of Amanda's podcast. It's called Run for Something. She's also a Dear Media family member. So go check it out on the network. There are the stories that you're telling on there are 
just so captivating and moving. And it really, really just made me see how the best people that take that want to take office and that hopefully eventually get elected are the people that have been through things and have experienced what it's like in this system and can bring that experience into office. And I think we have this idea of like a very cookie cutter, glamorous politician. And like, you can't have a single thing on your, on your record. And I think that's, I mean, of course we want our politicians and the people that are advocating for us to be upstanding citizens. But to me, your podcast has just really opened up my mind to um, how important it is to have people in, off- in office that understand the reality of what it is like to be an American. Now, I, our second episode, the one that we launched, one of the ones that we launched with podcast only about a month and a half old, um, was with Bethany Hallam, who is a- That Alleg- was my favorite one. She's phenomenal. She's an Allegheny County Council person. So it's a com- county that uh, includes Pittsburgh in Pennsylvania. She- talks about how on election night 2016, she spent it in the county jail where she had been arrested and was being held for having bought drugs off of an undercover police officer after having been addicted to opioids and heroin for a decade, how she didn't have a driver's license. She had been homeless for a while. She had a sour relationship with her family. And three years later, she wins office as the Allegheny County Council person and now is on the board governing oversight of the same jail she spent election night 2016 in. And she's been clean three years. I love Bethany. I think she's so um, spirited and like really knows herself in a beautiful way. But my favorite thing about Bethany is she can so clearly articulate like her personal experience and run-ins with the law and with being homeless and with opioids has directly informed how she thinks about her priorities in governing. And like, for example, one of the things she made sure to do during the pandemic was create ways for people in the jail system to be in contact with their family members outside. That is something that perhaps someone who hadn't had the same experience with the law and uh, criminal justice system wouldn't have made a priority. It just, it's so powerful. Representative Ayanna Presley says it best, the people closest to the pain need to be closest to the power. And so like Bethany was in the pain and now she has the power to fix it. It's beautiful. It was such a moving episode. You guys can save it on your podcast right now to like listen after this. I I couldn't recommend it more. I was absolutely captivated as I was by your book. If you are somebody that wants to run, is even thinking about running, it is literally the guidebook slash handbook slash campaign hack to getting yourself out there. It's super inspirational and I think really brings political system down to earth which I think is really important for a lot of people who want to get out there and run right now. But, you know, that was the whole idea. And the thing I, I really like to remind people is that if you feel like you don't understand it, that's intentional. People wrote these systems and built these structures to keep normal people, the non like hoity-toity folks out of it. It was meant to be a system for the elite that the people controlled. So if you feel like this is dumb, this is hard, why are these rules written in a way that don't make sense? It's because they were intentionally made to not make sense. And the jargon is being used to keep you out. So it is not that you are dumb. It is not that you don't understand. It is that this is a hard thing to understand. And once you you sort of see the system, and I think this is the thing I tried to explain in the book, is like the structure uses a lot of language to describe itself. But once you understand that language, it's actually pretty straightforward. You as a candidate have to find the list of people you need to talk to, 
talk to them, get them to show up to vote. Everything about that is not hard. It's actually doing it is hard, but the concept is not hard. So I'm really glad to hear that you felt that way about it. It was fun to write. I don't really remember writing it, but it was fun to write. (laughs) I know you said that in the book. And I was like, I mean, I can imagine that that was a traumatic time and probably, but also probably very therapeutic. It was, it was very, it was in a flash. I wrote the book between March and May, 2017, right after I had knee surgery because I dislocated my knee. And so I was like really out of it. And then also, also, yeah, rough year, trying to get off the ground. It was fun. It was a good like midnight to 4 a.m. activity for a couple months. I really do appreciate that though, because I think I don't think there's a lot of good advice up there about picking yourself up after a really, really rough disappointment. I think I won't speak for you, but I'm sure it was it was really helpful in probably digesting and processing the experience that you went through and turning a lot of pain into something that would eventually help a lot of people. It was, I think, the only coping mechanism I knew is that if you are sad, if you are mad, if you are upset, the way to deal with it is to work through it. And I wouldn't necessarily recommend that to everyone, but it helps that my work is mission-driven and allows me to make an impact. But it was really powerful for me. And even now, like, I get out of bed every morning furious, but also really excited because the candidates I get to talk to every day are doing it. They're, like, they're doing the damn thing. And getting to be a part of that journey and even in some small way, it's like, what a way to put my anxiety to work. It serves me in a way just sitting with it and doom scrolling on Twitter doesn't. <laughs> totally understand that. We'll get into doom scrolling shortly. So guys, don't lose that term. <laughs> I would love to talk about the process of what it's like to work with you and your team. For anybody listening that feels inspired and, and maybe in a couple of years or maybe sooner than we know it would reach out to you guys. What's the process like? Like, what is the first step when someone reaches out to you? And what can a potential candidate expect in those exchanges? So the first thing you should do is go to runforwhat.net. It's a website. You can enter your address and your name, your phone number, that kind of thing. And we'll show you the offices available to you in 2021. Regardless of what those listings are, you will immediately get an email. It'll invite you to a conference call. So we do conference calls with with potential candidates every week or so at this point, 20 or 30 people. Um, and in that call, we'll answer all of your questions. What are the basics? What can something offer you? That kind of thing. You'll then have a one-on-one with one of our volunteers. This is not meant to be a screening out interview. It's really meant for us to collect a little bit more information about what are you thinking? You do not need to know what office you want to run for. You do not need to know when. You do not need to know what policies will be in your platform. All you need to know is that you're interested. From there, we'll help you figure out every step of the way. We have guides on how to file to get on the ballot. We have alumni you can talk to as you're thinking through your decision-making process. We have other candidates you can talk to and connect with to, as you get your campaign off the ground, to commiserate with and learn from. We do partnerships with basically every organization you can imagine to try and get you the resources you need. And then once you get on the ballot, you've got your campaign up and running, you can apply for our endorsement. And once you have our endorsement, if we decide to go that route with your campaign, you'll have access to our regional staff who will be one text or phone call away basically at any minute of any hour of any day. Those are also the people, our endorsed candidates, who we recommend to reporters and to other organizations and who we raise money for and send volunteers to and who we track as our alumni. So it's really an all-encompassing support system. And I think for me, the biggest thing I have found is the candidates who have the most success, the ones who are able to take it to the next level, are the ones who can articulate the why. Why are you running? 
And if you're not even sure how to begin answering that question, ask yourself, what is the problem I care about solving? And what is the office that would let me solve it? Do you care about solving climate change? Think about what your city council does with building codes and carbon emissions. Do you care about arts funding in schools? Think about school board and how those decisions get made. Once you're able to clearly articulate that, um, or not even articulate it, but have like a gut answer for it, that's going to be the thing that gets you out of bed every day. And that's going to be the driving force for your campaign. So if you can find that North Star, everything else is just, just tactics. What qualifies in an endorsement for you? For us, we're looking for people who meet our basic demographic criteria. So local office, under 40, first-time candidates. We want to see that you have a campaign plan, that you know how you're going to get from A to Z. And if you don't yet, we can help you write one. But we want to see that plan. We want to know that you're running a strong grassroots-driven campaign, one that's built on building authentic and genuine relationships with voters. So in the before pandemic times, we wanted to know how many doors you were going to knock or how many you know voter contacts you were going to have. Now it's What's your plan for phone calls and text messages and ads, that kind of thing. And we want to know, especially if um, you're running against an incumbent, what's your positive vision for your campaign? What are you proposing for your community? It is certainly in some races enough to say I'm going up against an evil incumbent who's not fighting for folks. And that's a valid campaign rationale. But we really want to see what are you fighting for? Are you running for something that's just against? You mentioned incumbent politicians. I would love to hear what you think, in your experience of watching candidates run and win, what has been the most successful thing in defeating an incumbent politician? Hustle. The thing that it has every candidate who beats an incumbent has in common is they out-hustle their opponent, especially incumbents who have not had challengers in a while, um, especially incumbents who maybe underestimate you, as especially young people and young women are often underestimated. We worked with a young woman in New York, Alessandra Biagi, who was a running against the Democratic incumbent who was the head of the Independent Democratic Commission or caucus. It was a group of Democrats that had been caucusing with Republicans in order to give Republicans power in the New York State Senate. And the guy she was running against was a guy named Jeff Klein, who was the most powerful one because he led this little group that uh, was steamrolling and preventing a lot of progressive policies from happening in New York. Alessandra was outraised 10 to 1 maybe nine to one, pretty substantially. She knocked more doors. She showed up at more events. She took the campaign seriously and she presented a really positive vision for her community. And she did not let him settle. She kept him on his toes. And he was like, this young girl who like doesn't even know anything, has never been part of this before. She's not even a competition. I don't even need to care. She crushed him (laughs) and then led part... Part of that defeat is what led to a real progressive majority in the New York State Senate. But Alessandra is just one of, I don't know, at this point we probably had 100 or so candidates take on and win against Democratic incumbents or Republican wow. incumbents who have done so by working harder. You don't need to have more money. You just need to be willing to work harder, which I think is actually kind of uh, gives me a little bit of hope that you can out-hustle someone who's going to outspend you. I love that. I know you mentioned this earlier, but just to reiterate, how many candidates do you have running for the election right now? So we will have 522 candidates on the ballot in November. They're in all 50 states. <laughs> My favorite fun fact of the week is that more than 35 million Americans live in a place with a run for something candidate on the ballot for state legislature. Wow. It's pretty cool. 10% of the population. That's really cool. That doesn't even include like our city council and, and state you know, school board races. Those numbers are really hard to find. But It's really amazing to see how powerful this movement is. And I expect 
300 of them or so to win, if not more, which dramatically changes what government looks like in a lot of places. Changes the landscape of it completely. It's amazing. As a person myself who loves to hear the journeys and the stories, is there a candidate right now that you'd like to highlight or has a very specific, inspiring story? So I did an interview with uh, Gabby Salinas. Gabby is running for Tennessee State House. Gabby's story is heart-wrenching. So she is in her, at this point, her early 30s. When she was seven or eight, she was diagnosed with cancer. Once she was in remission with cancer, she was on a car trip with her family and got into a car accident that killed her father, killed her sister, and paralyzed her mother. How do you like? How do you recover from that? Her family had come from the United States, from Bolivia, and to Memphis for care at St. Jude's there, and was welcomed with open arms by this community that all of a sudden had to take care of this newly single mom who had been pregnant and newly paralyzed, and this daughter in remission from cancer. Gabby recovers. Her family finds their feet, gets into high school, gets diagnosed with a new kind of cancer, recovers senior year of high school, is about to leave for college, figuring out what she wants, the cancer comes back. So ends up having to stay in Memphis near the cancer, near her doctors, ends up going into remission one more time, gets citizenship with her family when she's 19, thanks to the the Tennessee state senator who basically sponsored her citizenship in Congress, ends up going to school and is now a PhD student doing scientific research on malaria cures is running for Tennessee State House specifically to flip a seat red to blue. And one of the things that drives her is the hospital that she and her family was taken to, she and her siblings were taken to after that car crash, was just closed by the state because they cut funding for rural hospitals in Tennessee. So when she thinks about her campaign and why it matters, if the kind of healthcare system that existed now had been in place 15 years ago, or if they had chosen to close those hospitals 15 years ago, she and her siblings may not have survived that car crash. You know, I think about Gabby's story and it's like, nobody else is paying attention to a state legislative candidate in Tennessee, but she is something else. And her story is so beautiful and so inspiring. And like, imagine coming back from that, from being sick three times over and losing your father and being a nine-year-old in a hospital where you don't even speak English and people are sticking chemicals in you to try and make you feel better and you just feel so bad. And then deciding 20 years later, the thing you want to do is is pay back that community for their graciousness by serving them. Man, something else. So I'm really excited for her. And it's actually what makes it really hard to pick a favorite. (laughs) But thank you for sharing that one. I appreciate it. Some of them have heart-wrenching stories like that. Others still, it's they are stuck with student loan debt and their state legislature is not doing enough or their school has not handled COVID in the right way and they're ready to to take over governing the school district that has disappointed them. I think my favorite thing about the candidates that we work with is that their stories are so different and each one is running for a different reason, but they are all pushing for change and for progress in a way that is going to be directly impactful on their neighbors and their family and their lives. That's really beautiful. So if we want to follow suit and try to make change, I want to talk a little bit about what the next week is going to feel like for everybody. What are some of the most crucial things that in a week up to the election, as someone that's been very close to an election, should we be laser sharp focused on right now? Okay. So first, make sure you vote. 
If you can vote early in your state, in person, you should. If you have your ballot sitting on your counter, make sure you fill it out and bring it in. Depending on where you are, you might be able to drop it off in person to your board of elections or to your polling place. If you don't yet have a plan to vote on election day, go to IWillVote.com. You can find all the information about your polling places. Then text three friends. Text all your group chats, uh, snap everyone, go on Instagram, make sure that the people in your life have a plan to vote too if they haven't already cast their ballot. And I know it's a little silly, but when you do post a picture of it, it will encourage people to do the same. And it presents, it's like the I will the I voted sticker of, of the 21st century is your I voted selfie. So make sure to post it. It will encourage other people to do the same. The next week is going to be terrible. You're going to want to throw up every day if you've been following the election cycle or if you've been paying attention to the news at all. It's going to be a nonstop glut of early vote numbers and what what states and what lines look like and and the problems people are facing. You know, it's, it's going to be terrible. And then election day, you're going to want to throw up because there's nothing left you can do. But in those stretch of time, try and channel your anxiety productively. Pick a local candidate you can make calls on behalf of. If you go to Run for Something's website, we have a beautiful candidate directory. There's a map. You can go find which ones are near you or in a state you care about. Pick a candidate, volunteer, make calls, send text messages, do whatever they need you to do in order to reach voters, especially the more local you get. You know, I showed you my ballot earlier. A lot of people don't complete the whole ballot because they don't feel like they have the information they need to. So when you call someone on behalf of a local candidate, you're nudging them to vote the whole ticket. And that's really, really important. Mitigating down ballot drop-off will absolutely make a difference in building sustainable power. And then when we hit election night, prepare yourself. There is certainly a chance we know the results uh, at midnight or 1 a.m. on election night, but there is equal if not greater chance that this goes on for a little while. And that's okay. That doesn't mean the election is invalid or illegitimate or that it's rigged or anything like that. It just means that it takes time to count votes. And we want it to take time. We want the votes to be counted accurately and fairly. So don't panic if election night feels bad. I would highly encourage you to follow Run for Something on social, on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, because we're going to be posting about our candidate successes. And we'll have election results for a lot of them on election night, not all, but a lot. And it will feel good, I think, to see the first Latina or the, the youngest member of the state legislature or a new city council person, you know, there will be wins that we can celebrate. Find the joy where you can because it's going to be going to be rough. <laughs> there was an episode with John Oliver on his show about three weeks ago. I don't know if you saw it, but he talked all about a lot of what you were just saying was that to just be very vigilant on election night, that just because Trump's voters are people who were voting in person and they'll be able to really tally those up quickly and he could technically, quote unquote, de- like declare a victory do not stop voting. Stay there all day. Make sure you get your vote in because it's going to take us. He really wanted people to reframe the idea of election night as election month because we don't know Mm -hmm. how long it could be to count up all the votes. It was, I think it's information like that and what you just said that is really, really helpful here to help kind of manage our expectations of what we're going to get into on November 3rd and how we can not feel disappointed or sidetracked by, excuse my French, but probably a lot of the bullshit that's going to go on on election night. I mean, if you think back to election night, which was tough, you know, the early in the night, we had Democrats took some big losses of the Florida governor's race, Texas Senate, you know, Georgia was still totally unclear what was going to happen. And it felt like, oh, this night is going to be terrible. 
But fast forward to a week or two later, as I started counting all these ballots in California and finally finished, oh my God, blue wave, 40 seats, we won the house. So it's okay that it takes time. I don't want anyone to be disappointed or disillusioned if if you go to sleep on election night feeling terrible. You will not feel terrible forever. I mean, you might, but you probably won't. (laughs) How can our listeners right now, or people in general, who don't necessarily want to run for office, but want to support the political process, how can they support? Great question. So first you should go to our website and sign up. Go to runforsomething.net. Whether you want to run, you want to help, you want to give, You don't need to have any of your decisions made up right now, but we would love to have you as part of the team so that we can give you the information you need over the course of the next couple of years, because this is a long game. We're we're, we're in this for the long term. So you should absolutely do that. Follow us on social, run for something now on Instagram. And I'm at Amanda L-I-T-M on Instagram and on Twitter. You know, you can find it. You've got a great Twitter. Get in there. And, you know, you should listen to the podcast. I think it's fun. I really, it's my highlight of my week every week is getting to talk to you. Couldn't co-sign that more. Listen to it, subscribe, download, share with a friend. It's fun. If listeners want to donate, where can we anticipate our funds being utilized? Great question. So Run for Something is a long-term organization meant to build sustainable power. So what that means in practice is that right now we are raising funds to make sure we're here for the 30,000 people who've signed up with us since June who want to run in the future. We've already done endorsements for candidates in 2021. We've got a couple dozen who are already committed. And we want to make sure that we as an organization exist to do so and to be there for them. So every dollar that you donate now helps support our team going into 2021 and beyond. Before we close out, I always like to give people the opportunity at the end of our episodes to highlight any platform. Obviously, we've highlighted Run for Something, but if there's any platform that you want us to be paying attention to, what is it? obviously run for something, but I would also really encourage you to take a look at the local organizing in your community. So my favorite website here is to go to Alliance for Youth Action. It is a network of of local organizations that focus on young people voting. And I think it is one of the most powerful uh, ways to build long-term power and also get to meet really interesting people in your neck of the woods who also care about making a difference. So check it out. And I'm sure this is just a simple Google search, but I would love to hear your preferred platform. Is there a website that you like to use to get the best information about local elections? I spend a lot of time on Ballotpedia, <laughs> um, which is a, it's like Wikipedia specifically for elections. It has a really good backstory. The other place you can go is BallotReady. And if you enter your address on BallotReady, uh, I think it's BallotReady.org, it'll show you your full sample ballot and you can learn more about each of the candidates wherever you're running. Amazing. Thank you so much, Amanda. It was so amazing to talk to you. I'm such a fan of everything that you do, and we're really grateful for the work that you do, too. Thank you for having me, and sorry for all the background. That's okay. You're in New York City. We got, you know, we got the dogs, we got the sirens. We keep it real. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Friend of a Friend. Before you go, make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at tiermedia.com. And for more behind the scenes of the show, visit us at friendofafriend.us and follow me at Liv Perez on Instagram. Don't forget the two Bs. See you next week.